Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. Glad you're here. For December, I chose a, a, a kind of a different approach to the holidays. We're using Sharon Saltzman's book, The Kindness Handbook, and our theme is kindness this month. In fact, next week, we're going to talk entirely about being kind to ourselves. Uh, the following week, uh, Marilyn uh, Sprague is going to talk about being kind to others. But you know, before we get on to either of those two topics... The author of this book says there are some things that we do that are almost prohibitive for being able to share kindness, whether it's with ourselves or with someone else. And so today I want to talk about these things, if you will, that stand in our way. Before we get there, though, let me me read you the promise of the book. This is from the introduction. She says, it takes boldness, even audacity, to step out of our habitual patterns and experiment with a quality like kindness, to work with it and to see how it might shift and open up our lives. This book is an invitation to do just that. Kindness can manifest as compassion, as generosity, as paying attention. It can be offered to ourselves, to those whom we know and hold in high regard, as well as to those whom we find difficult, even to strangers, to all of life, in fact. This handbook is a collection of stories, meditation exercises, inspirations, poems, and teachings, all pointing to the power and the grace of kindness. So what are these habitual patterns that she's alluding to, those things that might actually stand in the way without us even thinking about it, about our ability to show kindness to ourselves and others? Well, I want to highlight three of them today. She covers a few more in the book, but I want to highlight three of the most important ones. The first one is fear. Now think of a time when maybe you were fearful of something. If you're like me, there's even a body posture that kind of goes with it. Now, for, well, well, first of all, there are a couple. Uh, are, are you the run when you're scared or the put your dukes up when you're scared types? Right? So, so in general, humans fall into kind of two categories. I'm in the first category. When I become afraid, and you might laugh, first of all, it's the deer in the headlights. <laughs> Does everyone know what that is? I'll be like... <laughs> and then, and then, without even thinking about it, I figure out how to extract myself from the situation. So for me, it's the flight mechanism. First, I, I, I'm like stunned. <laughs> I got to take it in because I'm scared witless. And then I begin thinking about how to get out of the situation. But in, for an equal number of you, there might even be that still that moment of stun. But then it's the put your dukes up. You're not backing me into a corner, right? And, and it doesn't necessarily have to be fear that even has a particular reason in the real world, right? It can be an argument where you feel like you're being edged out. It can be something going on in the office where you uh, maybe feel your job is in jeopardy. It can be things you even worry about. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about worry as one form of fear. Either worrying about things that have already happened because they might happen again, or that squirrel cage mentality of, well, what if this negative thing happens? What if this negative things happens? What if that awful thing happens where we're projecting out into the future that things might go wrong? 
All of these, all of these are kinds of fear that are directing our lives. And when we're fearful, the last thing we're apt to be able to do is extend kindness out to the world. If you think about it, when we're in that fight or flight mode, by definition, our hand isn't going to be extended with warmness and kindness to others. So what can we do about this? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I have a joke uh, that might possibly help us out, uh, or at least we'll laugh a little bit. So a fellow went to a psychiatrist complaining about truly a crippling fear. Every time I lie down, I get this terrible feeling that there is something or someone under the bed. I lie awake all night in terror. Wow, responded the psychiatrist. You know, uh, this is common in children, but I haven't really heard of this as a phobia for adults. It uh, certainly can be treated, though. It will likely take about 20 sessions. I charge about $150 per visit. The psychiatrist went on to explain a little bit about the, the process that she would use and, and what the fellow could expect. Well, he decided he would think about it. A month passed, and when he didn't come back to the psychiatrist, she thought she'd better check in on him. How come I didn't hear for you, she asked over the phone. Well, responded the man, when I came home and told my wife about the cost, we really thought we should just save some money. We cut the legs off the bed. <laughs> and, uh, and so, believe it or not... Believe it or not, that's Sharon Salzberg's suggestion for us. Now, now don't get me wrong. I mean, if you really have a phobia, you probably do need to get some help. But her thought is, most of what we're afraid of isn't even real. Most of what we're afraid of isn't an actual imminent threat to you. And we should just cut the legs off of it. Let me explain a little bit more about what I mean. So, so often what we're afraid of is something that hasn't happened yet and may never happen. So often the things that we're afraid of are a reflection of things that happened in the past and may or may not ever repeat themselves. So often when we're afraid or worried, there is absolutely no good reason for it, really. And if you think about how we're wired, I can assure you, we'll get that flight or fight mechanism involved again when it's necessary. If that bad thing really does come to happen, believe me, your adrenaline will still rush, right? You don't have to feel it now and then. If we need to be in that position of defending ourselves or whatever is necessary, when it comes up in actual fact, we'll still be able to do that. So her thought is, let's cut the legs off of those initial fears that we have when there isn't anything we can do about it. So her, her suggestion is, when we have a fear, when we have a worry, is ask ourselves, what do I need to do to be safe right now? So is there actually something to be done? Do I need to call the police? Do I, do I need to you know, respond to the fire alarm? Is there something right in the moment that would actually be indicated I ought to do? Ought, ought I to call someone for help? Uh, ought I to ask for help? And if the answer is no to that, if there's nothing you really need to do to feel and be safe right in that moment, then allow it just to pass. Feel the feeling 
bless it on its way, and just cut the legs off of it. Don't allow it to keep running through your head. Don't allow it to take control of you. This is one of the things we can do so that then we're in that more secure and safe feeling place where then we can begin again with kindness to ourselves and others. We're not worried anymore. We can express kindness. The second thing that she talks about, she calls jealousy, but I I, want to talk a little bit more about that uh, because it may not be the kind of jealousy that you're thinking of. And let me illustrate um, with one of the stories out of the book. So she tells about a time when she and a friend of hers were flying off uh, from America to India. They were going to do a little bit of a pilgrimage. And uh, and so the two of them get to the airport and her friend had made the, the travel arrangements and they're standing in line waiting for seat assignments. And uh, they're, of course, listening to the other people around them and come to find out almost everyone in line got a much better deal on airfare than they did. Have you ever been in that position of, of buying something or purchasing something and then you find out that like it was really on sale and you know you could have saved a lot of money? So they're standing there and the people around them are saying that they're on business class for basically the same price as these two are in coach. And if any of you have been on a really long flight, like to India, you know the extra legroom and the extra service is actually kind of a big deal. So they're standing in line, hearing all this, wondering, well, maybe, maybe we can, when we get up to get seat assignments, we'll talk them into at least upgrading us uh, to the better class. So they get up there, and uh, and of course, the, the person at the podium you know, they're not going to play those games, right? There are a few places left. It will be a $700 upgrade if you want to go business class. So the two of them are looking at each other, $700, I don't think so. Then the woman at the podium leans over a little further and says, why in fact, for only $800, we could upgrade you to... First class. All right. Now, this is the kind of jealousy (laughs) that she's talking about in this book. It's the I'm never satisfied with what I have jealousy. It's the idea that something is always better than what I could possibly ever have. And so I'm always questing for something that's a little bit better, a little bit brighter, a little bit smarter. I'm never good enough. The world is never good enough. I'm never going to be satisfied. Now, do you see why there's a problem here with them thinking that person is going to extend courtesy and kindness to others? They're thinking their own lives aren't good enough. When we're feeling lack and limitation in our own lives, it's unlikely that we're going to extend that extra hand of friendship, that extra listening power, that extra ability to do something above and beyond for someone else, because we're feeling like it's being denied to us. Again, let's look at the reality of this. Now, uh, back to the airline story for a minute, right? Was it ever even in their mind that there was anything wrong with coach class? It was only when they became jealous of the people around them that it was even an issue, right? So so, uh, Saltzman's idea is, what do I need to be happy right now? 
Is there something I could easily do? Is there something within my purview right now as part of just my regular, normal, everyday existence that I could do to be more happy? Does it really require a seven, $800 upgrade? Does it require uh, something beyond what's right in front of me? And in fact, I want to try a little game with you. Think about yourselves just right now. Is there anything you need right now that would make you happier? I did this at the first service, and so I was imagining in my own head, because I had spotted the, the really good Christmas cookies over there, and I was sort of daring myself, right? If I really think that would make me happier right now, I could just walk down, right? <laughs> I could literally leave the podium and go get that. But the answer is no. Right in this moment, I'm perfectly happy. I don't need anything different. I don't need Lori to have sung a different song. I don't need the prayer to be done differently. I don't need the, the, the sound engineer back there to, to, to make me louder or quieter, right? I'm absolutely content and happy right now. And I'm in charge of that. I'm in charge of that feeling. And so I ask you, when you're in that position of the personal one-upmanship, when you're not feeling that you're good enough, when you're not feeling that your life is good enough, when you're feeling like you need an upgrade, ask yourself, would it really make a difference? Would those things really make you happier? Aren't you happy? Can't you be happy right in the moment? And so the question she has us ask when we're feeling this kind of jealousy of not having enough or being enough, she says, what do I need to make me happy right now? Right now, is there something? Would making a phone call make me happy right now? Would me charging down the aisle to get that Christmas cookie, which I do intend to have later, make me happy right now? I'm not lacking it. I'm fine right now. The third thing that she talks about, and this one uh, was more difficult for me because I have to admit I'm guilting, uh, guilty of this a bit. And the third block to our being able to extend happiness to others is judgment. And this is a big one. And I want to start, in fact, with yourself. Let me tell you a little story, or, or uh, something we're thinking about anyway. Um, when I was very young, I used to actually be a nanny for a certain period of time. And, uh, and I was working with a, a couple that had uh, a girl at that age where they were beginning to learn table manners. And, and of course, very young kids, right? They don't have any idea or even really the ability to hook things up in a way that table manners make sense to them. And that's why we have things like sippy cups. That's why we have things like plastic plates so that when they hit the floor, they don't break, right? We have a whole genre of stuff for young kids uh, to help them with that process. And I was thinking to myself uh, of that time when I did that and the absolute weird stuff that parents put up with when kids are going through that phase. And I can still remember the little girl literally taking, a, a, luckily, a plastic bowl of oatmeal and just pressing it up against my chest <laughs> and having it slay down my chest onto the floor. And, uh, and I think that was followed up with the sippy cup growing across the kitchen, <laughs> the kitchen as well, right? It was like, no, 
I don't want to eat now, and I don't even need to. I don't even need to say anything about it. Allow me to illustrate how I don't how I don't want to eat now. So, so what do we do when that happens? Do we debate with the child on the merits of uh, of proper food handling? Do we go into a rage over how horrible this is and, and what a bad person they are for making this kind of tactical error in our kitchen? Of course not. We say whoopsie. Right? Don't we? I mean, well, maybe you don't use the word whoopsie, but, but something, something that simply signifies that over time we are aiming for different behavior but not a significant, nothing that would allow the child to somehow think that they're bad or that they've done something in any way meaningfully harmful. We just say something like a whoopsie because that indicates, oh, well, that isn't what I had planned, right? And no harm, no foul. Next time we'll do a better job. How do you treat yourself? when you do things that are less than part of the plan or optimal? Do you see the trouble here? When we stand in judgment of ourselves, when we view ourselves as lacking, as foolish, as stupid, as clumsy, when we in fact in mentally harass ourselves for, for uh, being off the mark, do you see how that makes me feel closed up? And when I'm closed up, when I'm feeling bad about myself, how likely am I to extend my hand in friendship and kindness? See, it's just, it's the wrong energetics involved. When we are feeling that we're, when we're stupid, when we have judged ourselves as inadequate, the likelihood of us really being a presence for kindness in the world starts taking a dip. And then don't, you know, don't get me started on the judgments we have with other people, Right? Oh my gosh, when, when we're not judging ourselves harshly, we turn it to the neighbors, we turn it to Washington, we turn it to politics, we turn it to the, those stupid people, you know, it's like whoever they are, right? When we are in judgment by definition, we will not be kind. Not to ourselves, not to other people. So the solution for this one is another question. We ask ourselves, what discernment is actually useful to me right now? Now notice this isn't about being right or wrong anymore. It's that judgment, is it actually useful to me right now? Now it might be useful when I think, well, next time I'm going to do something a little differently right? Sometimes when we observe ourselves or others doing something that is less than optimal, uh, that's our plan for attacking this differently, right? Maybe I will not assume that the child will eat according to the clock. Maybe I ought to check in with them and actually see if they're hungry before I serve the oatmeal and the sippy cup of milk, right? It might cause us to actually look a little differently at how we want to do things, but is it useful to do the judgment piece? Discernment useful, yeah? I'm gonna maybe do this a little different next time. But why couldn't it be more just like a whoopsie, right? Maybe I need to do something a little different, but what I know is no harm and no foul here. 
everyone, including myself, is entitled to make a mistake now and then. So again, the question is, what do I need to do? What discernment is actually useful to me right now? Not just can I be right, not just is my opinion more important than their opinion, but is this level of discernment actually useful? And if not, let it just pass again. That idea of letting fear pass on through us, that idea of allowing jealousy just to be dropped on through us. Again, could I just allow this judgment just to pass on through us? Well, this last one, judgment is gonna be your source of homework for this week. What I would like you to do is listen to yourself talk a little bit. Next time you find yourself putting yourself down, judging yourself, for some kind of behavior that was less than optimal, I would like to catch yourself doing that and try your own version of whoopsie. Now, I, I haven't actually used whoopsie on myself, uh, <laughs> although it worked pretty well when I took care of kids. Uh, for me, I do. I, I just smile inwardly and say something like, uh, oh, there I go. <laughs> right? Just as gentle and sweet as I can. A friend of mine says something like, uh, uh, oh, bless your heart, Larry. Right? <laughs> just, that, just that little acknowledgement that things could have been better, but no big deal. No big deal. Now, if there is something then you want to change, Go for it, absolutely. If you notice something, if you notice you're doing, uh, yourself doing something that is not optimal, that is our chance to actually make a change in our life. And so make that change if you need to, but if it's more like, oh shoot, there I did it again, the next step for many of us would be to say what? You idiot, <laughs> right? This is where I want you to put that filter in and just say whoopsie. Just say, bless your sweetheart, Larry. That, that, there, there it went again, and next time you'll choose a different path. And let that be the end of it. Treat yourself with kindness first. So I'm going to close today um, with a bit of an exercise for you. Uh, we're getting ready to uh, work on our silent retreat for this coming year. Uh, you'll all have a chance to actually sign up with it uh, if you'd like. In a couple weeks, we're putting finishing touches on it. It's going to be in February, and, uh, and we're going to have a, a lovely silent retreat over three days. But, uh, but we're going to be using Jack Cornfield's uh, book this year. And I wanted to share, give you kind of a preview of one of the loving-kindness meditations out of some Jack Cornfield material. So I invite you to close your eyes. So this meditation uses words, images, and feelings to invoke a loving kindness and a friendliness towards yourself. So with each recitation of the phrases, we're expressing an intention, we're planting a seed, if you will, of loving wishes over and over in our own hearts. With loving heart as the background, all that we attempt and all that we encounter can open and flow easily. So allow yourself just to sit comfortably. Let your body rest and be relaxed. Let your heart be soft. Let go of any plans and preoccupations. We begin with yourself. Breathe gently and recite inwardly 
the following traditional phrases directed to your own well-being. You begin with yourself, because without loving yourself, it is impossible to truly love others. And so just take these words in. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in my body and in my mind. May I be at ease and happy. As you think of these phrases, picture yourself as you are now and hold that image in a heart of kindness. Some of you may find it easier to picture yourself as a young, innocent child. Adjust the words and images in any way that you wish. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in my mind and in my body. May I be at ease and happy. Beware that this meditation may at times feel awkward. It can also bring up feelings contrary to loving kindness. Sometimes feelings of irritation can occur. If this happens, it is especially important to be patient and kind towards yourself. Allow whatever thoughts arise to be received in a spirit of friendliness and affection. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in my body and in my mind. May I be at ease and happy. Whether the images or feelings are clear or not, ultimately it doesn't matter. In meditation, they will always be subject to change. Simply continue to plant the seeds of loving wishes, repeating the phrases gently to yourself. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in my body and in my mind. May I be at ease and happy. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence, that largest container of love that I think of as God. And what I know about this God, this this love that is pervasive everywhere is that it means me, that I express love for myself as well as others, that I allow kindness to be extended into my own heart and my own hands, both available to myself and to others. I allow myself to let go of thoughts and beliefs, of fear, of jealousy and judgment. I notice when I'm in these places, in these blocks, to loving kindness, and I release them. I feel the feelings and powerfully just let them go if they don't serve me. From this place of inner calm and inner peace, I know that I am able to serve the world, to truly be that container of love, to have God work through me as loving kindness. And as it is true for me, it is true, it is possible for each person here that each person here can... Re 
can easily release things that stand in the way of true kindness. And that each person here can extend their hands, their hearts, their, their time and their treasures to help others. Even if it's only uh, with intentionality, even if it's only with just our time and attention. Each of us has that ability to help the planet, to help others, to help ourselves with kindness. And so for this, I'm grateful. For this, I stand as a loving witness to the kindness that I see around me every single day. I release this prayer into the activity, into the action of the law itself. I let it be, and together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. So glad you were here. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.